Welcome to Altamar, where twice a month we navigate the rough seas of global politics. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, and today's topic is biodiversity and the accelerating disappearance of many species from the face of the earth. We will look at the politics of biodiversity and the impact of a planet fast losing its diversity in our society. Joining us is Colin O'Mara, president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation, an expert in environmental policy and conservation, and he'll be on in just a few minutes. But Peter, let's start by explaining the obvious. This is kind of a nerdy subject that suddenly has caught the eye of basically the realm of geopolitics. And so let's start. What is biodiversity and why is it important, especially right now? And we know that biodiversity refers to the variety of life on Earth, including species, ecosystems, and genetic diversity. It's important for very many obvious reasons, including providing essential ecosystem services like pollination, pest control, water purification. It helps to maintain the ecosystems that are critical to offsetting climate change. It's connected to our food security, climate resilience, supply chains, air quality, water quality, all issues that touch on politics and economics as well. That's so true, Muni, because this really isn't an issue about preserving species because they're pretty or they're cute. It's about preserving life as we know it for the species, but for us too. And that's why today companies are paying closer attention to biodiversity and environmental, societal, and governance initiatives that have become now mainstream. And it's also growing, it also has like growing economic value as many industries such as tourism and forestry rely on healthy ecosystems. However, as we have long learned on Altamar, every global issue has the politics and politics come into play on this one. It's no exception. Governments now are scrambling to create policies on conservation and they draft and sometimes pass and sometimes don't laws to protect endangered species. Globally, international agreements, summits, and regulations are slowly becoming building blocks, including the Convention on Biological Diversity to set goals for countries working towards biodiversity, conservation, and sustainable use. Montreal just hosted COP15, a global summit on the subject, and we're going to hear about this more in just a minute. So there is relative consensus on the importance of addressing our future, at least in like normal countries with normal leaders. And in December at COP15, nations did reach a landmark decision to stem the loss of nature worldwide, pledging to protect nearly a third of Earth's land and oceans as a refuge for the planet's remaining wild plants and animals by the end of the decade. So it all sounds super optimistic, but the difficulty has always been the balance between conservation goals and economic development. And we learned that early, early on. And this gets super political as business priorities and activism collide. Forestry, agriculture, and mining, and we've talked about this as well, are livelihoods for the developing world. It's really hard to just pledge to switch into some other sustainable industries. And creating those sustainable industries requires investment, requires political will, solid laws, and a lot of trade-offs. And these changes also have to be made in regions with the most biodiversity and so much to lose. So it's one thing to say that sustainable agriculture is mandatory. Another one is really trying to implement programs in rural Africa or Latin American countries where people are just making a living. Planetary politics can be complicated and get more complicated very fast. 
Hi, I'm Tia Ivanovich, and this is Tia's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And here's a topic that fits like a hand in a glove. So, you know, look, we all agree that the planet is on fire, and almost literally in many places. And yes, the developed world has implemented notable targets and pledges, but multilateral commitments, as we have learned for decades, and as you mentioned, Mooney, are always a bit vague, rhetorical, and non-binding And a true solution needs to cut through inconsistent foreign policy and governments that change laws on every election. So negotiating a global agreement on biodiversity is a start, but accountability does seem very low. So most agree that it falls on businesses and the private sector to kind of lead the way on this as the global political landscape is more and more fractured every year. So carbon emissions get much of the attention in the climate discussion, and with good reason, but the planet's biological diversity is shrinking so rapidly that it threatens to undermine the broader climate agenda. Half of global GDP relies on nature. Let that sink in. When forests are cleared or animals go extinct, the effects ripple not only across ecosystems, but also the economy. Like coral reefs and mangroves protect against the rise of sea levels and storm surges. Forests and wetlands reduce flood risks. This is all hypercritical, and I feel like we don't talk about it enough. So the decline of these life forms has been massive. In total, the world has lost 69% of its wildlife populations in the past 50 years. For example, deforestation, cutting down trees with mostly diesel-fueled machines, accounts for 11% of global greenhouse gas emissions, more than aviation and cement production, which we often focus on. So simply put, there's no hope of reaching the goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050 without halting and reversing deforestation. So here's my take. Business and government should explore innovative mechanisms to unlock financing for conservation and nature-based solutions. Carbon credits could help very much, especially if they give a higher value for greater biodiversity, but also mechanisms like the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, um, so-called the New um, Refugee Environmental Protection Fund, which invests in reforestation in climate-vulnerable refugee situations, is a really great example. Financial institutions also could establish policies on deforestation that's consistent with the goal of net zero global emissions by 2050. So closing this financing gap requires governments to incentivize investment in addition to traditional policy actions. Blue bonds, debt instruments used to finance marine projects that provide environmental benefits such as preserving corals are a really great start. And governments will be spending more in the years ahead on climate adaptation and mitigation, and they should spend more on biodiversity, too. We'd love to hear what you think. Please text uh, and tweet me at Altamar Podcast. So let's hear from our guest, Colin O'Mara, CEO of the National Wildlife Federation, on finding a path in a complicated world. Colin serves as president and CEO of the Federation, America's largest wildlife conservation organization. Prior to his job, he led the Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control as cabinet secretary from 2009 to 2014, and he served as a board member of multiple conservation initiatives and institutions. 
Colin was a Marshall Scholar at Oxford University and a Presidential Scholar at Dartmouth College. He has fellowships at the Aspen Institute and completed Stanford Business School's Executive Management Program in Environmental Sustainability. Colin, welcome to Altamar. We're happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me on today. So Colin, let's start at the very beginning. So why now and what are some of the major threats to biodiversity currently and why did they become so critical? Let's talk about the U.S., but also the world at large as Altamar is a geopolitical uh, podcast. Yeah, I mean, we are in the midst of a biodiversity crisis. Um, so some, have, some have coined it the sixth mass extinction um, and really the first one in eons um, in terms of the, the scale of, of loss that we're seeing. Right now, just in the U.S., about one third of all wildlife species are at heightened, a heightened risk of extinction. Globally, the number is a lot worse than that. And there's been identified upwards of a million species that are at risk of extinction around the globe. And it's a variety of factors, as you kind of as you alluded to. I mean, it's you know massive population increase, obviously, around the globe. You know, with that comes significant infrastructure. You know, we've encroached on well over half of the uh, of the habitat around the world in the last century. Um, you've seen the rapid rate of growth as as our, our needs continue to expand. So it's everything from habitat loss and fragmentation to increasingly disease, invasive species from other parts of the world that you know are introduced into different communities that all of a sudden have no natural predators and, and can kind of crowd out you know native species in those in those ecosystems, as well as uh, you know climate change obviously affecting everything from you know temperature to extreme weather um, to the to the, just the is it being kind of a force multiplier to the full range of challenges facing wildlife. So it's, it's a combination of things. In some parts of the world, it's overconsumption. That's not as much of a problem in the U.S., um, at least on the terrestrial side. But it's a, it's a variety of factors all coming to a head at the very same time um, that are putting our wildlife in, in peril. So we are very aware of uh, organizations such as yours around the world that are doing a great job. Give us an idea of what the international system so the UN, the OECD, and other organizations are doing to address this threat. It seems that they meet a lot and, and come to some agreements, and we've read about you know, all of these pledges, but what about real commitments? Are they happening, or is this just very you know, fancy-worded declarations? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, unfortunately, we're still at the point where we're still acknowledging the problem, um, which is great. I mean, it's kind of the first step to, to recovering species, I guess. But the action hasn't really followed the, the big commitments that, that have been made. And so, you know, we had a, a big, big agreement that was made in, in Montreal just a, a few months ago. At the end of the year, where nations around the around the world came together to to announce commitments to conserve 30 percent of their lands and waters by 2030, um, which is fantastic. Um, it's a huge step. President Biden had a similar commitment in the, in the U.S. that he signed as an executive order. Um, the U.S. is not a signatory to that agreement because we're not actually a signatory to the the treaty that allows us to participate in that process. But you know, again, great intentions, which is a huge first step. But at the end of the day, the the you know, kind of proof is in the pudding, and making sure that there are you know, tangible investments that are made. And like, and we've seen countries that have taken you know, biodiversity risks seriously. Places like Costa Rica, um, you know, places you know, some some countries in, in Southeast Asia that are seeing a huge boom in like tourism. Are seeing all kinds of economic benefits from from taking those steps. But you know, as of right now, the aspiration is much higher than the actual action that we're seeing. I want to ask you more about what happened in Montreal at COP15, but let me just take a, I want you to take a step back because I think you've done a great job of describing the crisis that we're facing, but try to give a compelling argument as to why this crisis is so important, not only for the preservation of the species, but also for humans. 
So, I mean, the, the most simple way I can make the argument is that when we save wildlife, we save ourselves. I mean, this is the proverbial canary in the coal mine. So, you know, if wildlife species are, 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 are dying because of pollution or, or habitat loss, we often see similar uh, impacts on humans. Um, obviously, you know, we see rates of cancer going up. We see rates of, you know, asthma and other respiratory illnesses going up. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a direct line between the impacts that are affecting wildlife and contributing to this kind of accelerating extinction event um, with the kind of decline of, of human health in, in a lot of parts of the world. I think, you know, there's, there's also you know, very tangible links between you know, having healthy pollinator populations and have healthy food production, having clean water um, that, you know, having healthy aquatic species and having, you know, healthier communities. Obviously, we have huge issues with, with access to clean water around the world, including in the U.S. and obviously in a lot of a lot of developing economies as well. You know, the communities that have healthier natural resources also tend to be more resilient to different types of extreme weather. So if you have healthy wetlands, if a massive uh, hurricane comes through or some kind of big flood, those wetlands that support a ton of wildlife are also able to absorb floodwaters that otherwise would flood out the communities that are adjacent. Places that have healthier forests are less likely to be prone to these massive wildfires that we're seeing, you know, all over the uh, all over the West and in, in parts of in parts of Northern Europe right now. And so, you know, you kind of put that landscape together is that if we do if we do well by wildlife, um, we're also going to be making ourselves both safer and healthier. I, I hear you on the wildfires. There's a huge article in the various newspapers today about the wildfires in Chile right now that uh, seem to be decimating huge swaths of land. But let, let's go back to Montreal and what happened. I mean, you, you've talked about how countries pledge to protect at least 30% of the planet by 2030. I guess I want to ask two questions. One, is it enough? And the other one is, is even that achievable? It's a great first step, right? I mean, it's, it's an important kind of marker to put down that we're going to try to kind of conserve and restore habitat. I think one of my big concerns is that given the complexity of, of kind of the ecosystems right now, especially as with the overlay of climate change, migration and kind of the movement of wildlife is incredibly important. So this isn't the conservation of the, at the beginning of the last century where, you know, it's kind of, if you protect a park here, or if we, you know, protect a little wetland here, or restore a little you know, spot of habitat, um, we'll kind of save a species. I mean, because of climate impacts and because of extreme weather and because of temperature changes, we're seeing ranges shift. And so we're going to need more connectivity. And so I, I do think that's one area that is, it's going to be incredibly important that wasn't a, as, as big a part of the Montreal, the COP15 conversation as, as it should have been. I think my, my biggest challenge is just making sure that we see the level of investment from national governments um, and some of the international bodies that we're going to need. Because, I mean, this isn't cheap work. I mean, like every dollar we spend on, on restoring habitat it has about an $8 return in terms of societal benefits. But you still have to come up with that first dollar. And what I'm, what I'm worried about is in a potential recessionary environment where you're seeing you know, some austerity measures going in. I feel like we make the same mistakes over and over again economically. Um, you're going to see governments that made big commitments, you know, potentially you know, change, you know, leadership changes, you know, political party changes in different places. And all of a sudden, those commitments never are followed through on, which is kind of what we've seen over the last you know, 15, 20 years in many parts of the world. So some say that business and financial institutions must lead the way in addressing biodiversity losses. In any case, we can all agree that more innovative solutions before like beyond traditional policies needed. There's been a flurry of activity in innovation and finance. And how do you see the role of business and finance evolving over the next few decades? 
And I, I appreciate the question. I mean, I, I do think that we've seen some evolution of you know corporate responsibility increase, um, and obviously a lot of the impacts we've seen, particularly in in some of the emerging economies, have been you know, from multinationals um, that are, are coming in, in. In some cases, specifically because there's you know less restrictions and less regulation on and different kinds of extractive activities. And so, I mean, I think there, there's a leadership opportunity there, but like government's still going to set the bar. I mean, this idea that you know entities that are only reporting to shareholders, even with you know ESG reports and everything else, are going to be sufficient to you know change behaviors to the point where we can actually recover species. I think we can stop the bleeding. I think, but I'm not sure the recovery can be started you know alone by the private sector. You're going to start in government. Um, involvement, and this is where I think the energy coming from like youth activists is so important because I mean, holding companies accountable in ways that previous generations haven't is going to have to be part of the solution. But it's going to take all hands on deck, given the scale and the magnitude of the crisis. And j- just to follow up on Teo's question, are there any new financing mechanisms? Like I, I remember the land swaps, or I-, I don't remember what it was called, debt for land, or something like that. Is there any new financing mechanisms beyond the traditional? multilateral system financing mechanisms that one could that one could look at to change the ability to move that first dollar actually i like a lot of the a lot of the different mechanisms i do want to make sure that you know companies that have kind of disproportionately borne the burden of, of these of these impacts despite you know usually multinationals contributing the the impacts and as opposed to local communities, um, making sure we're not kind of exacerbating the inequities that are in the system. I love the, the debt for conservation, the debt swaps. Um, I mean, I think, you know, given the the role of you know the IMF and other international lending institutions and how that's kind of really just eaten up more and more of, of some nation's budgets and their ability to kind of serve the debt and serve bondholders as opposed to serving the residents is obviously a huge issue. So alleviating that debt in return for, you know, conservation practices that have benefits for you know, species, you know, especially species that are migrating, is a benefit to everyone. Um, I just think we have to have some honest conversations. I mean, there's a very close parallel between the conversation that was happening in in Egypt and the conversation that was happening in Montreal um, over you know, how do we make sure that you know, whether it's, whether we use the term reparations or we use the term you know interregional wealth transfer, making sure that you know the countries that have kind of created very little of the problem are not being asked to you know kind of bear all the costs. And so you know I, I do like these I do like these mechanisms. At the end of the day, the money still has to come from somewhere, or we or we need to be writing off large amounts of debt. And so I do worry about in the U.S., for example. Well, there's been a hesitancy to alleviate some debt. I mean, there's been you know, announcements always made by you know the executive branch, but the Congress rarely follows through. There've been you know commitments made to these big you know climate funds and different different pieces, but the money rarely follows. And so um, the answer is yes, but we have to ex- actually execute if we're going to see the you know, kind of benefits that we can, and also hopefully lift up some emerging economies in the process. And let me go back because I my colleagues know that I, I harp on how do you communicate things a lot, and, and so uh, go back to the question about how do you connect and bridge the argument of protection with the argument of that it's good for humankind and in a world that has 8 billion people and most of those 8 billion people don't live in industrialized countries so when you talk to indonesians or colombians or brazilians or indians how do we talk about the bridge between economic development and sustainability especially in the developing world yeah, I mean, I, I do think that one of the first places is, is food security, um, because you know places that have you know healthier wildlife, have healthier natural resources, healthier soils, you know, tend to have you know better yields, right? And like and this gets into complicated conversations around you know chemical use and and you know GMOs and, and the like. But I think you know making trying to make the case saying like look by restoring these natural resources, you know, we're, like I'll use a U.S. example in the number of migrants that are trying to come to the U.S. Um, from countries that have really decimated a lot of the natural resources, where all of a sudden you know you see the, the cartels taking over more and more arable land. You, you see you know, different 
kind of violence in, in places that over natural resource, over you know, water, over soil, um, and then folks kind of fleeing, trying to get out of that out of that just horrific uh, paradigm. That's very different. We're not seeing a, we're not seeing a huge migration right now from folks trying to leave you know, Costa Rica and Brazil. Right, we're seeing in the Northern Triangle, and so I think you know making the case that like healthy natural resources is a way to actually create a more robust, healthier local economy that's more self-sustaining, that is more more um, both sustainable economically and ecologically is a, is a compelling argument. But we need to be willing to invest, and we need to be willing to kind of make those investments. One of the things that you know back to back to Tateo's comment before, I mean, I think you know the role of U.S. consumers or kind of you know European consumers and even even Chinese and, and Japanese consumers. Uh, and like the impacts of those consumption preferences having in the, some of the countries that you're that you're talking about um, are massive. Like we do a lot of work, you know, trying to have producers that are in the you know, palm oil or in you know in, in different types of leather, you know, basically trying to, to improve the sustainability of supply chains in like the Sahado in Brazil, um, because we know that the impacts of, of U.S. preferences and, you know, and and European preferences in particular are driving deforestation in the Amazon. Yet that linkage isn't there for the average person when they're just buying something at you know some some department store or offline. And so you know trying to drive change that way also and, and unfortunately there is no silver bullet right we need all of these strategies and we need to show we need to make the case that it's in people's self-interest to save wildlife because it's going to benefit themselves right well we've spoken a bit about the u.s and i want to get into that a little bit more the previous u.s congress recently considered an important piece of legislation called the recovering america's wildlife act but it didn't pass in the end can you Talk to us about the reasons why this legislation failed and what are its prospects now. I mean, after all, this shouldn't be a partisan issue. So how do we push forward? And also talk a little bit about how you compare what the U.S. is doing versus what other industrialized countries are doing, uh, like Europe. I mean, you talked a lot about the U.S. and European consumer. And so is there a push here to try to get this legislation and others like it on the books? Yeah, absolutely. So the just for your listeners, so the Recovering America's Wildlife Act um, was a bill that would have really invested in the recovery of the full diversity of wildlife. A lot of the legislation in the U.S. historically has gone to species that people hunt and fish. So, you know, in the U.S. context, so this is species like white-tailed deer and, and elk and, and, and uh, ducks, kind of the full range of waterfowl and, and wild turkeys, um, and then also sport fish like trout and, and salmon. Um, and, and so this, this bill was the first kind of significant attempt to try to provide uh, dedicated funding for every state and territory and, 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 and tribal nation, nation to have resources to actually recover the full diversity of wildlife. So every state has a what they call a wildlife action plan. They identify the species that are most at risk. The U.S. 50 years ago this year passed arguably the most important biodiversity law in world history, which was the Endangered Species Act, which has been incredibly successful at saving species once they're at, at the kind of the brink of extinction. Um, you know, 99% of species that have been listed by the, by the American Endangered Species Act have not gone extinct. Now, the challenge is that there's very little preventative medicine kind of upstream. So if that's the emergency room, you know, kind of thinking about upstream prevention to help species before they reach the brink of extinction, it's obviously much more cost effective. It's just like in our healthcare, right? I mean, like if you can do that preventative medicine upstream, it's obviously a lot more beneficial than if we're trying to do everything in the emergency room. That was the, the goal. Big bipartisan support, passed the House, House of Representatives with bipartisan support, passed the Senate committee with bipartisan support, got caught up in a, in a fiscal issue, um, and then really just we ran out of time. And so, I mean, I do think it's a model for the, the world, um, potentially to make sure we're investing in the full diversity of wildlife and that, you know, restoring habitat, reducing, you know, threats is the is the most cost effective way to go. Um, it unfortunately did get tied up after the election, after the, the House swung 
in the November elections, there was obviously more focus on kind of fiscal issues and, and it kind of got caught up in there. But it wasn't from a lack of will and it wasn't over a fight over the substance of it. It was kind of the fiscal component of it. And so that's what we're working on right now, seeing if we can come up with a configuration that can work for the, the current Republican-led House of Representatives. Um, but we were, yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking to get down, but we're not going to give up because, frankly, failure is not an option because the species are still you know, inching towards extinction every moment we delay. So you've, you've mentioned that there are obviously multiple avenues you have to take at once in order to well, to actually create progress on the subject. What are some landmark legislation pieces like in the U.S. and around the world that really have led to specific improvements or specific breakthroughs that can be used kind of as as a precedent for, for future legislation around the world? The early ones in the U.S. were the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. This basically prevented like the commercial hunting of, of all kinds of species. This is following the the kind of extirpation of the passenger pigeon, which was one so prevalent that could blanket the sky. And the, the last one died in the Cincinnati Zoo in the in the 1910s. You know, the bison had been shot off the off the plains just through a just kind of a grotesque effort to you know deprive tribal communities of their of their one of their kind of most important source of sustenance, but also kind of cultural significance. Um, and so we had this kind of uh, white-tailed deer were in trouble. I mean, so in, in that early part of the 20th century, they they took action to save migratory birds. They also passed something called Pittman-Robertson and Dingle-Johnson, which were bills that actually dedicated a part of um, some excise taxes specifically to wildlife conservation. And they saved, as a direct result, they, they saved, you know, a lot of the, ungulate, the ungulate species. So things like deer, mule deer, um, elk, moose. Um, moose are still struggling for a variety of reasons, but, and then also kind of a series of game species. So there are some good models out there. The Endangered Species Act is obviously incredibly important. The Wilderness Act of um, 1964 is incredibly important in kind of protecting bigger landscapes. Um, internationally, there's been you know, kind of leadership on like marine protected areas. Some of the, the Central American countries have just done amazing things with, um, you know, kind of having kind of linkages between um, various tourist taxes and those monies going directly to conservation. Um, you know, Costa Rica is obviously the leader, but Belize and, and others are, are in, the, in Guatemala are, are doing in, interesting things as well. There's models in the in the European system around you know, different kind of revenue system, revenues going directly back to conservation from different tourism activities. And in some of the Central African countries, you still see linkages between you know kind of managed hunting being allowed and then some of those revenues going towards conservation. Obviously, there's controversy around that, and obviously there's been huge abuses of that. And you know, obviously, you've seen a lot of that. Social media the last few years, but there are different models that are out there. Unfortunately, most are, are very few are at the scale that, that we need. But I think there are like lessons that we can learn from each other to you know make sure that um, you know, we're conserving these amazing places. So I didn't expect you to go back so far. I'm very surprised, like happily surprised about about the kind of the trajectory of the biodiversity protection. That's 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 encouraging and also a little bit frustrating because there there should be more progress happening now. Who are the enemies of biodiversity. So who and what are there countries, obviously business and, and governments, who do you have in your in your like enemies list? Yeah, I mean, I think this, this is one of those categories when, like, you know, when you when you know better, do better, right? As they say. I honestly don't think a lot of it is like malicious. I don't think there's like, I mean, I think there are folks like in the climate space that like know that like the the activities that they're doing are actively contributing. I mean, I, I do think, unfortunately, the biodiversity crisis is kind of like death by a million cuts, 
right? It's unsustainable forestry practices. It's overconsumption in some places because, you know, folks actually need food, right? I mean, there's, there's places where we see like overfishing, for example, because it's one of the leading sources of protein. It's, you know, it's the impacts on, you know, all, all the extractive activities that they're not done in a sustainable way. You know, we have seen, you know, a lot of, you know, international companies, you know, come into, come into countries without a lot of protections that are, Often not having having the regulatory protections, you know, desperate for you know the economic activity, allowing you know kind of the the pillaging of, of landscapes in a significant way. Obviously, there's there's challenges with some of the industrial agriculture practices um, can be incredibly difficult at scale, especially for not protecting natural resources and kind of in balance for that. So it, unfortunately, it's not like we can just say you know it's not like there's a Bond villain you know somewhere that you know we can kind of point to. It's a million actions that have added up over over kind of generations of the way our kind of economies have, have really placed placed a premium on extraction and resource consumption as opposed to conservation and, and sustainability. And so it's trying to flip those models um, in real ways. On the, on, the, on the international side, I mean, I think a lot of countries are stepping up. A lot of folks are signatories to a lot of these agreements, but we also see, you know, the way the OPEC or, you know, even some of the, some of the um, Eastern economies are, are really trying to grow rapidly right now with, with natural resources being at the center of that. The, the Chinese government obviously is, is spending a lot of time over the last 30 years developing partnerships with different countries in Africa in particular where, you know, folks either have oil or other kinds of natural resources because they don't have those same resources in their own country trying to kind of secure supply chains for, for the future. And so you just add up all those different things. And that's why we're at the point we're at right now. Colin, we're running out of time. So let me ask you a last question that's very open and it comes from two sides. What what are the your main worries about the politics surrounding biodiversity and what is it that you're most hopeful about? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to actually talk about this because it doesn't get the same um, airtime as a lot of other you know crises that are out there. I think the thing that worries me the most is that it is incremental. So it's not like, you know, I mean, I'll use just a U.S. example. So the monarch butterfly, as iconic as it gets, right? Beautiful black and orange butterfly. There are 90% fewer monarch butterflies today flying through the middle part of the country than there were 30 years ago. Almost 98% less in the kind of the California fly, whereas a Western fly, where there's kind of a special way. I mean, that's a significant drop. And it's captivated the attention of millions of Americans, but not yet hundreds of millions of Americans, right? And I think, you know, I just worry that just in this, you know, kind of chaotic world that we're living in between the war in Ukraine and, you know, still having, you know, women losing rights by the day in, in Afghanistan. And then, you know, on top of that, you know, mass migration and, you know, climate issues and economic issues and, you know, inflation. Um, this is the, this, these types of issues that are more existential, these threats are, tend to get short shrift. And so how you keep them on the front burner when there's always another crisis is really important. And it's a collective action challenge, right? It's not like, you know, the four of us together could not, you know, get, a, you know, just you know, kind of decide what like, oh, we're going to do globally to solve the crisis. I mean, it takes a, a lot of individual actions and, and, you know, individual nation actions and regional actions to kind of get at the scale, um, so have solutions of the magnitude of the, of the crisis. And so, you know, my, my hope is that there's greater awareness now than ever before. I do think a lot of the international bodies have done just a wonderful job kind of sounding the alarm. And now we have to answer the call. And I think that's where I'm optimistic because I think if you, if you talk to the average person, whether it's, you know, somebody in the U.S. Or, or, or someone abroad, no one wants to have wildlife, you know, go extinct on their watch. I mean, there's, I don't think there's not like a lobby right now saying, you know, let's kill the wildlife, right? I mean, I'm not fighting against, I'm fighting against a series of 
kind of unfortunate kind of evolutions in the economy as much as, you know, individual actors, you know, to, to your last question. And, and I think that's what gives me hope because there's really, and even in the, in the example of the legislation we talked about, there wasn't like a lobby actively fighting against it. There's some folks saying, hey, we should pay for it because our debt's, you know, really high in the U.S. And obviously there's fights over monetary and, and fiscal policy. But, you know, at the end of the day, like if the will is there, I think we still will succeed. And I still think there's still time for us to save the wild, the, the incredible diversity of fish, wildlife and plants that we've been blessed with. But we have to be, able, be willing to act now. And that's what keeps me up. And, you know, when I look at my five, five-year-old and my 10-year-old, um, you know, I just feel like, you know, failure is not an option. And I know at the end of the day that, you know, when we save wildlife, we will save ourselves. And this could be a big part of the, uh, the next evolution of, you know, hopefully a brighter tomorrow for everyone. Colin O'Mara, CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. Thank you for taking the time to join us on Altamar. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for covering this. So, yeah, Peter, that's, this is such a worthy, worthy cause and such an important issue it also feels like kind of the forgotten cause and and that everybody knows it's important and nobody puts it first on their list. And I wonder if if there's any way that this topic can copy some of the activism of other causes that have been so successful. And that if you look at, you know, kind of the numbers are either equally or, or less important for our future. I worry that the awareness is there and they've been I can't believe it started in the beginning of the 20th century. That's really slow moving in terms of making activism a lot more widespread and a lot more global. That I am, I'm, I'm concerned about the baby steps. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the problem here is his point of he has no enemies, but at the same time, it just seems like stasis and other priorities just leap to the top of the so maybe maybe what he needs is enemies that's absolutely true maybe what he needs maybe what he needs is to be able to blame somebody but even if i think about the campaigns of like don't litter don't throw trash out the window of your car and things like that campaigns you see whether you see them in the united states or you see them in colombia or you see them in indonesia these campaigns have taken hold and i feel like this one just hasn't. And I, I don't know if it's the onslaught of information that we all are dealing with every day, but somehow this hasn't, notwithstanding Greta Thunberg and, and other impressive activism to capture the mind, this one just doesn't seem to capture the minds. No, I agree with that. And I, I think, you know, his, his, his point was really interesting when we talked about sort of business and finance and how involved they are, because I think I mean, one of the keys, key solutions, and to his point, there are many solutions, it's not one silver bullet, but one of the key solutions is, you know, educating the consumers because people don't really understand how wildlife is connected to climate change and how that's connected to, you know, just generally our environment and making everything, you know, better for the future. And so I think it's making, you know, making cool like company partnerships, right? Like, we know Patagonia and climate change. Like, how about you know doing something that's more specifically focused on on wildlife? So I think these. I think it's just making it making it cool again. Um, that is is one of the ways that we can get you know much more activism from youth with, because that that really seems to be the key here. So uh, or you know having a restaurant that is called like wildlife food. Um, I don't know where I'm getting that idea from, but. Uh, just kidding. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that that's probably the key. 
So we love this episode. We learned a lot and we hope you did too. And you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, which helps us a lot. We also have a free bi-weekly newsletter with analysis of global trends. And we hope to see you next time.